Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Greg Daly. It's great to have you back on the podcast, Greg. It's good to be back, Rachel. Thank you. So for those who aren't familiar with Greg's previous episodes, you've covered a pretty wide range of topics on Risking Enchantment with me here so far. We've done one on Vermeer's paintings, which I love doing, and we our more recent one was on the experience of soldiers in World War One. So naturally... <laughs> Which you're looking at surprise and amazement. We definitely did that one together. <laughs> Mate, I, I don't remember that. I, I thought we'd done one with Sophie Shaw, and I've got something in my head about the 1916 Rising, but I honestly, yeah, I lose track. You're right. I had forgotten about the one about Sophie Shaw, but no, the 1916 Rising is one we'll definitely have to do, and we'll at least have some kind of thematic unity with the one that we're going to do today, which is about early Irish Christianity and how we celebrate it today, namely with our uh, national saints, St. Patrick and St. Bridget. But yeah, so we're, we're covering a big range <laughs> of topics. And of course, we've also worked together over the last couple of years uh, on your magazine, Levin, which is currently on hiatus, but the sixth edition is coming relatively soon. And it's a project that I've been really proud to be a part of. And so much so that when I was researching this episode, I was like, where can I get some good articles about early Irish Christianity? And I thought, I know, I'll go through my old <laughs> copies of the Levin magazine. So it, it's, it's benefiting not just readers in general, but me specifically. <laughs> yeah, well, that, uh, yeah, I, I was quite impressed when uh, the sheer number of topics that you're able to point to from Levin that we've we've touched on around this. I, if you asked me, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought of them immediately, and and now I'm thinking of more. So yeah, we've done well. <laughs> so for today's episode, we're this episode should come out I think in the second week of March. So we're just coming up to St Patrick's Day, which is obviously a big day of celebration in Ireland and actually across the world. Uh, it really has become a sort of global celebration. Um, but for us in Ireland this year, we also had a new national holiday this year on the 1st of February. Well, the celebration was the following Monday, but it was for um, the feast day of St. Bridget. Uh, they introduced it as our new bank holiday, but it has raised between St. Patrick's Day and St. Bridget's Day. I feel like there's an interesting thing going on with the celebration of national figures and how to do that in societies that are largely let's say to a degree post-Christian, at least in their sensibilities and not necessarily, um, at least trying to strike a balance between the people who want to celebrate saints as their national figures and people who want to move past that. So uh, we did contemplate trying to get this out in time for St. Bridget's Day, but it didn't happen. But I think there's a lot to say about St. Patrick's Day, which has been so well established that it's very far removed from its original Christian and Catholic celebrations, that it's now a day for drinking and parades, and that's kind of it. And contrasting that with St. Bridget's Day, which doesn't have that kind of legacy of at least national celebration, although most people at school will have made St. Bridget crosses and things like that. But trying to find how to celebrate that on a national level, our, our government and our leaders have settled on a sort of uncomfortable position where they're saying it is both a celebration of a pagan goddess and a Christian saint at the same time to sort of please everyone, which is a very interesting and 
<laughs> not altogether helpful way, I think, of looking at any of these kinds of topics. So that was something that we really wanted to dive in today. I think, Greg, you in particular were really passionate about how St. Bridget was being represented in the run-up to this uh, new national holiday for us here in Ireland. Yeah, I, I'd been bothered. I think it hit me at some point last year, and I just had this sinking feeling that we we're going to see an awful lot of rubbish basically. The whole line that we, we'll tend to see, and I know you have a couple of passages about this, um, but about Bridget as a goddess um, is one that's everywhere nowadays. And, and it was so obvious that it was just going to be swamping the narrative. A good thing that I've seen this year is I don't think I've seen as many articles in the last few months, as uh, like in my life, as I've seen in the last couple of months, saying, hang on a minute, Bridget's a historical figure. She is probably the most influential woman in at least in the the first thousand years or so of known Irish history and a hugely impressive figure as a a founder of a of, a, of an immensely influential Christian community in in Kildare this is something that shouldn't be glossed from the record in favor of a kind of modern confection and and confection is the right word I was I, it's funny the People try to have this both ways, where they try to go, well, Bridget was originally a goddess, and then there may have been a historical figure called Bridget, but the stories about the goddess got applied to her. Um, now, it doesn't make an ounce of historical sense based on the evidence we've got. That just doesn't work, and I can, I can go into that if you want. But what really strikes me about it is that what people are trying to say in this one, where they're trying to have it both ways, so they're not quite saying she was only a goddess. They're saying, no, she was a real person, but everything we know about her is kind of fairy tales based on the goddess. And um, what they're doing there is they're trying to say this is a work of syncretism, is the, the technical term for this, uh, it, that it's syncretic. And syncretic syncretism is where you basically, you know, it's like when the Greeks looked at Carthaginian religion and they saw the god Melkart and they thought he's just like Heracles. And then they assumed the Carthaginians worshipped Heracles. And when the Romans looked at Germanic religion and they find it weird that Zeus is kind of a set or Jupiter is a secondary god for the for the Germanics because they go what and it's because it's Thor and he's not as important as as, as Odin so they, they find it a bit weird that Jupiter is not as important to say Mercury in that kind of, and that's what syncretism is you think they're the same thing you kind of merge the different religions and and it happened when the Vikings became Christian you actually see it where you have we have amulets that have Thor's hammer on one side and the crucifix on the other side. And it's it's an attempt to try and make sense in a crossover period. So this thesis is basically saying um, turning Bridget the goddess into Bridget the saint is syncretic. But it's not syncretic at all. It's entirely synthetic. It's a modern fiction. It's something that happens in the 19th century. There's a, a French person um, called... Oh, it's... Um, oh, I can't remember. It's in 1880. And... Um, 1880... Somebody hypothesizes that the goddess Bridget, who did exist, we think, in pagan Ireland, becomes St. Bridget. And everything that we have from then builds on this. And it's built on nonsense because we only know like two things about pagan Bridget, pagan goddess Bridget. One of them is from the, I think it's the ninth century uh, document, a glossary called Cormac's Glossary, the Sonus Cormac. And that talks about Bridget being the daughter of the, the Dagda and one of three sisters, all called Bridget. And she's, which is, you know, must have been kind of confusing in the family. 
and that she's a goddess of poetry. She's beloved of poets. That's the only thing we're told about her. There's a, there's a later document dating from, I think, about the 12th century, mid 11th, uh, about the Battle of Moitura, this kind of legendary battle in Ireland. Now, it'll be based on earlier accounts, but anyway, you're dealing with the 11th century or so. And the Battle of Moitura involves Bridget's son being killed in the battle. So she's, she's, she's got a husband, she's got a child, she gets orphaned, or she, not orphaned, she, she loses her child, he gets killed, and she weeps, and she weeps loudly for him. She's actually identified as the kind of the inventor or the creator of keening, the funeral ritual in Ireland. Now, that's all we know about Bridget the goddess. She was a goddess of poetry and she invented keening and she had a child. Now, none of these details are ever associated with St. Bridget. Far from having a child, she's famously a virgin. That's kind of the, the, one of the big things about her. And most of the things that we see is supposedly goddess attributes are connected with fire. You know, there's like fire visible over her house when she's born. At one point when her mother's asleep, somebody looks over and they could see like a ball of fire there. Um, there's a flame above her head. All these things. And supposedly these are pagan attributes. And they must have been pagan attributes is what we get told. And we're told it as though, for instance... As though the, the, the core feast of the church in Christianity isn't Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit appears in the form of fire on the heads of all the apostles. You know, um, there's plenty yeah. of Christian references to fire miracles one way or another. They often involve the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here. Bridget is seeing as a, as a bearer of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I think that's really important that we're, we're seeing this trend to equivocate and say that two things are once. Like, I think it's really interesting. Greg and I were reading these descriptions that are on the sort of official websites for both of these feast days that, you know, for directing people to whatever events are happening in Ireland. But the description of what the day is, in both cases, is actually very telling and in some ways quite funny. But if it weren't for the fact that we're really struggling with this problem, and I think I'm, I'm about to read them out just because I think that they're sort of interesting. But the reason I think this makes for an interesting topic is, first of all, that I think this is in some ways a problem being faced by a lot of societies and communities these days, which is how do we celebrate our Christian faith in a culture that has adopted it to a certain extent and to a certain extent is now rejecting it. I do think even a lot of our listeners are from Ireland, which so it will be of direct interest to them, but also especially St. Patrick has gone so global that I think it is actually important. But also as we're going to see that early Irish communities and the saints were part of this globalization of Christianity and that they played a very important role. And so it is important how we celebrate, especially even Irish saints in particular, these early Irish saints. So it is something that I think is of interest and of note to anyone listening. And I think there's a great fondness for Irish saints in general, which is a wonderful thing. But you wouldn't know that, like I said, from the websites of these celebrations. So the St. Patrick's one does not reference at all that there is a person involved in St. Patrick's Day. It says, join us in Dublin for St. Patrick's Festival 2023. For hundreds of years from a small island on the edge of Europe, we have shared our music, poetry, art, literature, our culture and heritage, and most of all, are people with communities and countries all over the world. Note, not mentioned in their faith. Um, our stories have bound us together as one global community, a community that traverses borders, 
enthralls and entrances, connects and inspires a community that welcomes all voices with dignity and respect. One community, one planet, one human race, one great big beating heart. This March, we invite you to to St. Patrick's Festival in Dublin to help us celebrate our part and our place in our global community. It's it's it goes on a little bit more, but it's just in that ilk, which I think speaks to, like I said, this very ingrained celebration of St. Patrick's Day that doesn't that has managed in some ways to shed its origins, whereas St. Bridget's Day has to be more explicitly equivocating on its website. It says a fifth century saint, a mythical pagan goddess, Bridget is many things to many people. And this Monday, February 6th, marks the first of a new annual public holiday in honour of this unique figure. To some, she's Saint Bridget, founder of Ireland's first convent, lauded for her cross of rushes, her healing wells and sacred flames, and of course, her miraculous cloak. To others, she's a triple gifted pagan goddess of healing fire and poetry and a potent symbol of feminine power. Whatever Bridget means to you, there are a host of events taking place across the country. So we have two really interesting examples there of how to describe what should be a Christian feast day. And even taking aside of the fact that we live in a much more multicultural society now, but there's so much to be said, even from these historical figures and their the communities that they came from, that we as, as a nation should be proud of. And yet, as you were saying, Greg, so much of it is just washed away in favor of this synthetic version of history that isn't actually representative of our uh, the true history of our culture, which includes many great stories of pagans and pagan gods and goddesses, but is not the same as slapping a pagan wash over real historical figures. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very true. It's funny, back in the 1916 celebrations, um, Michael D. Higgins gave a very interesting talk where, for all its failings, it had some real strengths. And one of the things that it highlighted is that any commemoration tends to say more about the people commemorating than the thing being commemorated. He reels off all the influences on the rebels of 1916 and conspicuously omits religion as being one of them. And it's striking that that Patrick list, likewise, it's this, it's this dog that doesn't bark in the list. I mean, it is true. I mean, okay, until the famine, when people are going abroad because they're starving, until the famine, basically, Irish people are going abroad. Yeah, it happens. They're doing it to a huge degree in the early Christian period. They do it in the kind of, as the medieval period goes on, um, and they do it during the Reformation as well. And you have hugely influential networks of Irish people on continental Europe in particular. And they're doing all the things that, that are listed. You know, they're sharing culture, they're sharing heritage, they're telling the stories of Irish history, they're sharing Irish music. All of this is happening. But at some level, above all, what they're sharing is they're sharing Christ. And they're going abroad to do this. It's funny that we can sometimes focus on the means and miss the end that's going on here. I I thought about this quite a bit recently. Back when the Benedict option was being talked about as a live possibility, a huge, to a huge degree, people talked about this idea where Christians could kind of take to the hills as a way of preserving not just Christianity, but Western culture. That was pretty much the idea. And the notion behind this was that basically that's what St. Benedict did back in the day. Well, a few years ago, it must have been 10, 15 years ago now, the then Pope Benedict gave a really interesting talk in France about St. Benedict. And one of the things he said is that Benedict did a huge amount to preserve European culture in 
what is sometimes called the Dark Ages. But what he says is that's not what St. Benedict was trying to do. That was a side effect of what he was trying to do. He went off and founded his monastery because he was trying to encounter God. He was trying to find a space to encounter God. Similarly, you know, there was a big bestseller back in the mid-90s, the How the Irish Saved Civilization. It does testify to enormous achievements by the Irish, uh, the Irish monks of the early Middle Ages and their huge contribution to European learning, European thought, European art and so forth. And all of that's very, very, very important and should never be forgotten. But more important in a way is why they were doing this. And they were doing it to share Christ. That was their objective. And we we go very far wrong if we focus on ultimately side effects rather than the intention of these people. I, I think this is part of our problem nowadays is that Christianity is at best unfashionable and dull for a lot of people. If it's not actively objectionable and oppressive in their minds, it's unfashionable and dull. And the problem with this is that Irish history is defined by Christianity. I'd even go as far as to say, for most purposes, it's defined by Catholicism. The first date we have in Irish history is 431, which is when Pope Celestine sends Palladius as bishop to the Irish who believe in Christ. That's the first date we have is 431. We have nothing before that. The first documents we have written in Irish are written by a British Catholic who is a bishop writing to other bishops in England, basically telling his story, defending his case, and then in one case, writing he writes two documents. The other one is his letter, which is trying to argue against Irish Catholics having been enslaved. These are the first things we have. The first documents we have written by Irish people are, again, Catholic monks. Um, you've Columbanus writing to the Pope, you know, you've all, which is, which is important as well, because one of the other great myths nowadays is that Irish Christians weren't really Catholic. Like there was a Celtic church, supposedly. And it was separate from Rome. And this is despite the fact that, you know, they write to Rome. They pledge allegiance to Rome. <laughs> they make it very clear that they believe uh, association with Rome is vital to them. And in fact, there's a couple of stories of St. Bridget, which make this very, very, very clear. We know that in the Middle Ages, you have this story of St. Clare being ill. And when she was ill, um, she basically was able to attend Mass remotely uh, in a very pre-COVID kind of way by having the mass appear in her cell and she could kind of watch it and join in. Well, Bridget supposedly could likewise hear mass from afar and she could hear mass said by holy people all over the world. That's the story anyway. And um, she hears and sees mass in Rome and she thinks, oh, well, that's better than how we do it. So she sends off to basically get the rubrics for how Mass is celebrated in Rome so they can celebrate Mass accordingly. And then she kind of has again one of her visions of Mass in Rome and she realised, oh, Rome has changed how they do Mass. Okay, well, we better get updated rubrics. And again, she sends off to Rome because Rome can just shape the Mass and she sends off to Rome and gets the new robe rubrics and applies them. Now, did this happen or not? Who knows? But what we do know we can say with confidence, is that this is a pretty solid historical testament to the Irish church at that era, valuing what was going on in Rome, paying attention to it, and wanting to emulate it. So all these things are they're kind of embarrassing and awkward for us now because we want to be, as a society, un-Catholic. We want to be unshackled from a past when we were supposedly poor and ignorant. It's kind of inconvenient when we point out that we were this by choice, what we were, we were by choice, and we usually weren't that ignorant. We weren't always that poor. 
<laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I think it really highlights a couple of things that I feel like are also contributing to this, which is that to me, there's a sense that our history, as you pointed out, it's synonymous with Christianity, but our history is so old that when we're talking about this era, it feels so remote and it feels so disconnected to anything that we know today. And so it's very easy to dismiss it as feeling not feeling like it's not particularly real. Uh, and I think it, that's sort of compounded by the way in which the stories of saints were captured in that there was a very heavy focus on, on miracle stories. And I, I think we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what to do and what to think about these miracle stories. But that kind of mixture can make it feel very unreal. And so as much as you were saying, I definitely don't want to lose the sense in why all of these great Irish figures were doing these things and, and traveling, like we we're saying, or having an interest in what's happening in Rome in such an early part of Irish history. I, I do think it's worth taking a little bit of time to actually place what Ireland was doing in this time as a, you know, the, from a very historical point of view and the great achievements that it was having, um, especially because I think that's something that anyone can have pride in. And from there, you would hope that perhaps they would come to recognize the faith that drove these actions, but that as an Irish community, like they say in their St. Patrick's Day website of a global community of all of these things that like, if you, if you don't have pride in the faith aspect, you can absolutely have pride in the incredible achievements and the real artistic and scholarly. And like you said, I think it also, it, it banishes the idea that these were ignorant, superstitious people of faith that Ireland, you know, it's such a cliche now to say, oh, the Isle of Saints and Scholars. But the underlying reality of what was going on in Ireland at that time actually does have something to it in terms of, of something really to be proud of. And that I, I think it's so interesting. There was uh, an article in Levin, like I mentioned, by our mutual friend, Father Connor, who has also been on the podcast. But I loved how he was saying that there was actually people in England complaining about a sort of brain drain where all of the smartest people were heading to Ireland to go and, and pray and think and write and all of these great things. And I think it's very funny that I, I love this sort of complaint that uh, it's, I think it's Adelham of Malmesbury says, why I ask is Ireland where thronging students assemble by the fleet load exalted with a sort of ineffable privilege as, as if here in the fertile soil of Britain, teachers who are citizens of Greece and Rome cannot be found, who are able to unlock and unravel the murky mysteries of the heavenly library to the scholars who are eager to study them. But what this complaint underlies is that's exactly what's happening in Ireland. That is that is what they're doing in Ireland. And he's saying, well, why can't we do it here? And I think it's so interesting that we have these great records. Unfortunately, we're missing most of the actual manuscripts themselves, but we have lists of of libraries and bibliographies that show how much we uh, places like Glendalough and Bangor and Iona and Ross and all of these great places of prayer were also places of learning that it was and not just theology that it was grammar and rhetoric and logic and arithmetic astronomy from our first episode of this year with the calendar of the year it, it's good to know that we were strong on on is it uh, computers on the science of the calendar and even as I know Father Connor would really stress the fact that we were writing in Irish as well as Latin we were one of the few places to embrace the vernacular language as well so it, it's just 
to me, such an interesting time and place to highlight. And it's it's such a shame that we seem to be so determined to shy away from it. I know I was in the Museum of Archaeology just two weeks ago showing friends around to show them the insular art, the amazing gold work that's done that, that was done there. I was looking at the Tower Brooch, the Arda Chalice. These things are mind-blowingly amazing. If anyone's looked at the Book of Kells, and if you can't get to see it, I would recommend the film The Secret of Kells. We we also did uh, an episode on that to highlight the amazing artwork. It really is the Book of Kells. I think is is generally seen as one of the greatest treasures of European civilization, and the fact that we just gloss over that in so many ways is really disappointing. Yeah, it's a it's funny. Um, the Secret of Kells and the the three. Uh, cartoon saloon films in general are, are obviously superb in this regard. I do at times feel that I'd like to have an article about them at some point with a title like The Faith That Dare Not Speak Its Name because it's, it's <laughs> interesting what they don't quite do. The, the Secret of Kells is about the creation of the Book of Kells, basically, and whatever, however the context is there. But it's consistently referred to as the book. They never once mention that this is a book of the Gospels. You know, what precisely it's a book of is not said, which I don't say is a criticism of the film. I think it's a strange reflection on modern Ireland that this is the case. Yeah, it's interesting what we kind of suppress. And again, ultimately, I think it's a case of people being slightly embarrassed by our past and a weird kind of cognitive dissonance that kind of kicks in where we like round towers. We like high crosses. We love the Arda Chalice. The Sam Maguire Cup is a giant, big, silver version of the Arda Chalice. We love the Arda Chalice. The Darren of Lanhord is one of the most astonishing things you could see anywhere. Because it's not just the chalice, it's the pattern as well. It's a full communion kit. All these things are, are recognised, but somehow we seem to find it difficult to join up the achievement on these things. Yeah. And, and we shouldn't. I mean, I don't know if you know this one, but one of the instrumental occasions in the creation of the Modern European Project, for instance, was a celebration of St. Columbanus. It was... I think it was like the 1500th anniversary of his birth or something like that. And it was at um, one of his monasteries, monastic foundations in France. And it was an opportunity for like Schumann and um, all kind of all the other fathers of your modern Europe to meet up. John Twenty-Third was there. He wasn't the Pope at that point. He was like papal nuncio or something like that. And they were, there was a recognition that Columbanus in particular was one of the most remarkable figures of his era and one of the people who can be seen as kind of a progenitor of the idea of Europe as a mm. place, as a, you know, if you ever look at Norman Davies's book, Europe, A History, one of the things he says at the start of it is that Europe is a tidal continent. Is Russia part of Europe or is it not? It depends. At different points in history, it depends. Ireland always seems to be part of Europe, always. Britain might not be. It can kind of slip back and forth. Is Iceland? Um what about North Africa? Does that ever, is that sometimes there, sometimes not? And you have bits to kind of slip back and slip forth, depending on how you want to define it. Europe is basically not as simple as this little peninsula that comes off the eastern edge of Asia. It's a bit more complicated than that. And Columbanus is one of the people who, who highlights this as Europe as a place, you know, um, you know, his for his letter to Pope Gregory the Great begins to the Holy Lord and Father in Christ, the fairest ornament of the Roman Church, as it were a most honoured flower of all Europe in her decay. 
So he's recognizing that Europe's in trouble at that point, but also he's recognizing it as a continuum. And uh, similarly, he, when he writes to Boniface, Pope Boniface IV, like a dozen years later, he starts to the most fair head of all the churches of the whole of Europe. Pope Benedict, a few years ago, uh, when he was doing his, his Wednesday addresses in Rome, he picked his major theme was the saints of the church. And a lot of this is because Benedict believed that the two most powerful arguments for Christianity were the saints, the canonized saints of the church and uh, the art the church has produced. There is, is two big things he highlighted. He's not saying the most important things, but he says there are two things that he felt made the best case for Christianity. Um, now, I say the canonized saints of the church. He also talks about the huge influence of just like the simple devotion and Christian love that his mother would have shown him or that family members showed him and so forth. It's the kind of thing that Pope Francis would talk about very often, the kind of the, the uncanonized saints that so many of us have known. Anyway, so Benedict gave, when in his talk on Columbanus, he highlights Columbanus as a great European, as a person who helps create the idea of Europe. Now, Columbanus is also significant because he's one of the people who testifies to the idea of Ireland and of Irishness. And this is hugely important. Occasionally, you'll see a narrative that Ireland, as a nation, as a people, as a kind of common identity, is basically a modern creation. It, it's most definitely not. Um, you see... You see it highlighted time and again in the early Christian writers from Ireland. Columbanus is the most obvious one, where he specifically writes, again, that line, we Irish inhabitants of the world's edge, disciples of St. Peter and Paul, and of all the disciples who wrote the sacred canon by the Holy Ghost. But you see him, you see his follower, who writes about Ireland. The first poem we have about Ireland is by a follower of Columbanus, and it's about Columbanus. It starts with Columbanus, who's also called Columba, was born in the island of Ireland, situated at the far end of ocean. You know, see, you have this from the beginning, people who testify to Ireland as a real place, and a place that matters. So that's almost your starting point for what do we owe these people, even if you don't want to recognise them for what they wanted to communicate, which was Christ, even if you want to disregard that, which I think does them a profound injustice and does all of our ancestors a profound injustice. Even if you want to do that, we should at least start by saying the notion of Ireland and the Irish is uh, as, as a people who recognize themselves as a people um, yeah. Yeah. is one that we see in the early Christian writers. But I mean, th th their, their intellectual achievement is, is astonishing. All the cases you mentioned, the various kind of monastic schools and so forth, the influence directly and indirectly on the European courts. You get to you get to um, Erugina. John Scotus Erugina is probably the greatest mind of ninth century Europe, and what you know, a lot of people would say he's probably the best philosophical mind in Europe between the sixth and the twelfth century, sixth and eleventh centuries anyway. These are remarkable individuals, and we just don't know about them nowadays. Part of the problem is that so few of the texts that they wrote or that are written about them are available in print. Whenever mm -hmm. they get translated, they were usually translated once in the 19th century journal and never seen again. If our bishops wanted to kind of think about how understanding and appreciating our past can help build our future, they would look into kind of, into kind of bringing these things into print. I loved what you were saying about uh, Columbanus and how he's in some ways like a patron saint of Europe and, and at least a founding figure for it. Um, because I think... That was one of the things that I really loved learning about was actually in terms of 
Iona, which I got it wrong earlier, but it was Columba, otherwise known as Colum Kill, who founded, not not Columbanus, easily mixed up, but that they were such a huge center point for communication and for establishing an Irish identity, I think is something that you, you were speaking about, that we're so indebted to them in terms of how we even see ourselves as a people, but also that they were hugely influential in spreading the idea of Christianity and even the movement of people around the around the world. They reached Iona from these little currucks that they had, uh, which could apparently reach Iceland, a journey of a thousand miles within six days, which is kind of mind blowing. And that there was later boats that were even more effective in this, but that they were able to travel. And that once they were in Iona, they actually set up a Via Dolorosa, which is based on the the descriptions of the the, the Holy Sepulchre in, in Jerusalem and, and kind of created their own pilgrimage site based on that, which both inspired people to go to the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. It was a huge part of the pilgrimage movement of, of the medieval times, which was much bigger than I think people kind of remember. But also that they, that I if I remember rightly from my first year of history in UCC, where I did Pilgrims and Crusaders with Damien Bracken, which I loved, but he was talking about how it also inspired people to do kind of mental retreats because they had this textual description um, which described what the Holy Sepulchre was like, and that came from Iona. Yeah, th- a lot of that was kind of new to me when I, I read it and you were kind of sharing things with me about that. Certainly, it does appear that the influence of Jerusalem as uh, as kind of a centre point for pilgrimage was enormous in the European mind at this point. One of the, the relatively early abbots of Iona, he's maybe um, 150 or so years after Column Kill, maybe 100 years, is, is Adamnon who also Yunan, you'll see his name as as well, about 700 AD, uh, writes some hugely important books. It, it, the kind of the key life of Colum Kill is by him. So also is a description of the holy places of, of, of the Holy Land. He's also partly responsible for um, a law protecting women in warfare in Ireland at that point. The Cáin Adonon uh, is attributed to him. So a kind of very, very influential figure. But yeah, no, Jerusalem is enormous at this point in the European mind. Um, and very much it's the centre of the world for them. So that makes sense for them to kind of to kind of associate their pilgrimages with that. Um, there's even a theory that Irish churches in general are built according to dimensions that they believed applied for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Temple of Solomon and so forth. That there's this kind of Jerusalem influence on Irish church architecture. Now, whether it's correct or not, I don't know, but it's certainly one of the current ideas that's getting that's getting a bit of traction. Pilgrimages in general um, are are key in this context, and the sense of kind of going away to find God is is, is absolutely core to it. You find this with with um, Columbanus in particular. Again, I mean, Colum Kill goes to Iona, the island of E, to give it its kind of proper name. He goes there with a group of kind of companions. Later accounts have it down as a huge punishment involving him supposedly having copied a copy of a Psalter and so forth. Those accounts, you don't see that early on, but certainly he went there for whatever reason early on and is enormously kind of influential and inspirational figure after that. It's not long after that that um, Columbanus goes to the continent and he takes like a, a, a dozen or so colleagues with him and they are deliberately kind of re-evangelizing kind of paganized lands, lands that were Christian, 
however deeply they were Christian, you might contest, but they were Christian. Yeah, this notion of being pilgrims for Christ is absolutely key in, in the Irish mind at that point, and they, they commit themselves to it very heavily. Yeah, and I, I love that. I think it was back in Father Connor's article that we've already quoted from, but that uh, the Irish stepping into the Carolingian education that began, there was a quote from Sedulius Scotus, which said, out of the East came the Magi bearing gifts, hastening in their journey to the Christ child. But now Irish scholars arrive from Western lands, bringing their precious gifts of learning, which is a lovely description. And I think it maybe brings us a little bit back to, I wanted to talk a little bit more about St. Patrick and St. Bridget, both a little bit about their kind of historical story, but I don't want to give their, their stories are quite long and, and there's, a, there's a lot to say about them. So I don't want to give a, a full rundown of them, but also to talk a little bit about their miracle stories and how, how we can approach them now and the things that we can take from them. And just that balance between that kind of medieval genre of of miracle stories versus that balance between saying that we don't want to be Catholics who don't believe in miracles, that would be ridiculous, <laughs> but also that just because it was written down in a medieval book doesn't necessarily make it strictly true in a way. But the reason I think that story brings us back to Patrick is I think you brought up something really interesting before we started re recording, which was um, the idea of Ireland is the edge of the world, having had Christianity brought to it as this very important identifier in, in the journey of Christianity throughout Europe and, and as they thought the world. Yeah, that seems to have been kind of key from Patrick on. You know, you have this kind of great commission to bring Christianity to all the nations of the world, to bring it to the edge of the world. And Ireland was believed to be the edge of the world. I think I was, it was years ago, I was at a conference in UCC actually, where this was really brought home to me, and it was a conference. Uh, one of the one of the panels or one of the talks was about classical ideas of Britain in particular, and we were all sitting there very smugly, chuckling away because the general theme was they're all savages. And then we were advised, in case you're getting too cocky, they thought we were worse because we were even further away, and that we were collectively just seen as incestuous cannibals. And that trope actually carries on in different ways in terms of kind of anti-Irish tropes that will pop up during medieval writing and modern writing as well. But yeah, the notion of the Irish is the end of the world is, is definitely key to how they see themselves. And then they become, you know, it's, it's Pope Francis with his idea of going to the peripheries and then the peripheries can renew you. This was, I mean, I don't think it worked, but this was one of the ideas behind him coming here for the world meeting of families um, is that he believed Ireland was a place that he needed to go to because of how Ireland has, from its position as a periphery, contributed to the renewal of the church in the past. And they definitely do this. They, they definitely do this. I mean, as I said, you have Patrick came from Britain. So Christianity, okay, there were pre-patrician saints, but Christianity in our national narrative came to Ireland from Britain. And yet, Colin Kill has to come from Ireland to Scotland. And then you have this Irish-led Christianization movement coming down from Scotland through the north of England. I mean, even when you have the kind of the, the Roman mission to Britain, when uh, Augustine is sent there by Pope Gregory, it only really gets traction because they, they're able to connect up with noble people who have been Christianized by kind of Irish and post-Irish missionaries already. So you, you kind of have this, and it happens on the continent as well. You have, you know, Gaul had been a Christian land to some degree anyway. The Germanic tribes having come in, the Franks and so forth, are 
needing to be baptized as as as, a, as peoples and Colum, columban and co play a key role in doing that and so i guess you have a great wealth of knowledge on saint patrick and, and saint bridget so are there any kind of key points that you would want to share about who they were and and why they should be celebrated patrick's a totemic figure um as, as i said there he's he wasn't the first Christian in Ireland by any means. We we know this. We don't know how many there were, but we know that, you know, um, 431, and we have 5th century reference to it, 431, a bishop was sent to the, the Irish believing in Christ, uh, Palladius being his name. Now, we don't know if he got here. We don't know if he did anything here. We know nothing about him except his name and his date. And this is why you will find old-fashioned kind of histories of Ireland, which will start Patrick's history with 432, as the assumption being that it's an entirely made-up figure. <laughs> it's basically saying Polybius died immediately and Patrick replaced him. You know, that's kind of the, the model. And we, we don't know that. But um but yeah, and there were there were certainly um Christians that we that, that have a cult of having predating Patrick, uh pre-petition saints, Alva, Declan, Kieran of Sire. I like Kieran of Sire a lot. He's um he's got a monastery of animals who are his friends. I'm very I'm very fond of them. Um and he's able to, he generates plant-based meat for his fox, which is quite good. Uh, the fox who steals his sandals because he's so desperate for some meat. And he sends Brother Badger along to retrieve. I, I never heard pictures of them as like Win of the Willows type characters, but that's what I see now. And Brother Badger is sent off to retrieve Brother Fox, brings him back because he'd gone off ashamed while eating the sandals, brings him back and is told, um, firstly, he's told, if you had told me you were so desperate, I would have made an accommodation for you. That's the, that's the first thing. So you, you get a hint of community life for what it must have been like for the monks. It wasn't necessarily ultra ascetic. They could make accommodations for people. And secondly, he said, uh, I could have taken bark from that tree and made it like meat for you. So uh, very modern in that sense, uh, their plant-based meat. But no, so we have um, we have these kind of early lives, er, er, kind of pre-Patrician saints. But Patrick is kind of the totemic figure. He kind of has to fight his corner with bishops in Britain. We know this, but certainly by the late 7th century, he is clearly seen as the defining figure for at least the north of the island. He seems to have had a very strong connection with Mayo in particular. We associate him, of course, with Armagh. It's kind of hard to say. In some ways, it just... Patrick becomes so important because it reflects the general Christianization process that happened at the time. Yeah. It, it's interesting that this happened unbloodily. You know, if, if you look at the spread of religion through anywhere, really, look at in South America, look at in Eastern Europe, it tended to be violence along the way. One way or another, you know, it could be missionaries going there and being martyred, or sometimes it's Christianization by the sword. It seems that neither happens in Ireland. And in fact, it was quite famous for not happening in Ireland. There's a, a wonderful passage in um, in the 12th century, which I, I like a lot. So Gerald of Wales, who's a key person in kind of the, the propaganda against the Irish at that point during the Norman invasion. And Gerald of Wales has an awful lot of stories, including talking about how many miracles about the Irish saints suggest that they're generally an angry bunch. He says the Irish saints are angrier and more aggressive than saints elsewhere. And their miracles are largely about getting people who did things. It's not quite true, true, but nonetheless, there's an element of that. We can talk about that in a sec. But there's a gathering of clergy at one point. And uh, I'll read you a little passage that he apparently, from a conversation he was at, he goes, well, once upon a time I was making these complaints and others like them to Tathews, the Archbishop of Cashel, a learned and discreet man. 
in the presence of Gerard, a cleric of the Church of Rome, who was then on some mission or other in these parts and was, was blaming the prelates especially for the terrible enormities of the country, using the very strong argument that no one had ever in that kingdom won the crown of martyrdom in defence of the Church of God, though nobody in Ireland had died for the faith before that, because Christianization seemed to have happened relatively peacefully. The Archbishop gave a reply which cleverly got home, though it did not rebut my point. It is true, he said, that although our people are very barbarous, uncivilized and savage, nevertheless, they have always paid great honor and reverence to churchmen, and they have never put out of their hands against the saints of God. But now a people has come to the kingdom which knows how and is accustomed to make martyrs. From now on, Ireland will have its martyrs, just as other countries. So you have in the 12th century this notion that Ireland was a place that was Christianized peacefully. Patrick was clearly important in it. Was he the most important? I don't know. But he was elevated, at least in the popular mind, to being that and elevated fairly quickly to that. Um, there's certainly no other rivals for him in that sense in the early church in Ireland. Yeah. Um, Bridget, you know, Bridget's an interesting one. Where So she's a little bit later than Patrick, not much. Uh, we don't have dates for her as such. She's reputed to die in 525, but what you know, how realistic that is, we don't know. The earliest source we have for her life dates from about 680. It testifies to her life in, in a way that's significant, actually. Because even though it's the earliest written source for her life, it describes her church, it describes her tomb, it describes her cult, all of which... And they're all very ornate and very well established, which is a clue that has been going a long time. So in other words, Bridget as a historical figure and a person who matters has been recognized for a long time before 680. So that's useful and worth bearing in mind that it kind of it, it testifies to a history before the history. And Bridget's clearly enormously important. Hers is the first Irish biography, for want of a better phrase. Um, you know, Patrick writes his own story in the Confessio in the fifth century. But Cogitosis, writing in the in the seventh century, writes the first life that we have of an Irish saint. So, uh, which is which is, a, I think it's incredibly valuable to have that. It provides a model for other lives to come later, and it's interesting what's in it and what's not. Um, later lives present Patrick and Bridget as kind of friends and colleagues, and um, Bridget will go to Patrick uh, to hear him preach. Although on one occasion she goes to him to hear him preach and falls asleep and sleeps through his entire homily. Though she has a quite an important dream about how Ireland will become a land of Christians and then subsequently uh, that will all fall apart. So uh, you can comment on that all you wish. But um, so you have that kind of relationship of them is set up later on, but you don't see it in the early life. Um, the early on, but she's clearly hugely important. Kildare is one of the major, major monasteries of Ireland. You can see, certainly from the early lives, it looks like there's attempts to effectively divide up the, the zones of ecclesiastical influence of Ireland. Armagh being a major one, Clonmacnoise being another, and Kildare being the, the other one. These are kind of three huge zones. An interesting thing about her, actually, is that we regularly hear that Bridget was a bishop. This is kind of one of the big kind of bits of popular folklore about her. There's lots of kind of stories to come from later lives that get kind of elaborated in the popular mind. And there is a reference in, I think it's a ninth century life, that claims that Bridget was accidentally consecrated as a bishop. Now, there are two lives before that that mention no such thing. And it's significant that even that life makes it very clear that whether or not she was consecrated as a bishop, she certainly didn't act as one. Um, 
she has to get priests in to celebrate mass and to, to kind of um, to provide the Eucharist and so forth. So she clearly depends very heavily on the clergy that way. Um, you even have that, that life kind of elaborates on a thing which I like in an earlier life. In her early lives, the, the very first life, you have this wonderful bits where she's traveling around the country uh, on her chariot while meditating. So she's basically she's praying while she's commuting, which is very practical. And it's a good model for us now. You know, when you when you talk about are these saints that remote from us and you go, well, there you go, um, you know, not always. But by later times, she's not just praying while she's traveling. Her charioteer is preaching to her while she's traveling. So again, if you want your podcast on the bus, you know, you've got your, your version of it there with, with Bridget. I thought you were maybe going to suggest we should have more priest taxi drivers. Um, <laughs> the, the other thing that I know that you, you sent me a great document with a lot of extracts from, from that life of St. Bridget and the early descriptions of her. And I think that leads us into this discussion of miracle stories. And also because you mentioned about how Patrick converting Ireland and that being relatively bloodless, I think what he does do is he fights a lot of demons, which is a fantastic element of the story. That is what potentially gets, I know you you earlier before recording pointed out to me where the first description of St. Patrick casting out snakes comes from, but there is, to my mind, at least a sense in which that should more represent a casting out of evil and of demons from from the Irish landscape. Ironically, something we didn't mention from this year's uh, uh, St. Patrick's Festival is that their branding and logo theme is snakes, yeah, <laughs> which I, reaches another level of irony, I think. I it's, it's, it's wild. I would love to have been in the room when they discussed doing that. I mean, uh, presumably the conversation went something like, you know, what image can we link with Patrick? And you go, well, Patrick himself. No, that's too corny. Um, shamrocks, that's too corny. What does anybody else know about Patrick? Um, snakes? Excellent, that'll do. And they, they, you know, and it's like, it's as though if, if, if states they decided to make Independence Day not just a national holiday, but a day when everybody would come to Ireland for Independence Day, and they chose as their logo the Union Jack. You know, it, it's just a wild notion to kind of pick the thing that the person's famous for getting rid of, and then make that your, your emblem. It's, 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 it's almost a rebuttal to the legacy, kind of a defiance of what it's meant to be about. You know, St. Patrick's Day historically was about, it was a day to celebrate, ultimately to celebrate Ireland becoming Christian. That's mm -hmm. what it was for. And somewhere along the way, it just became a day celebrating, well, actually, usually it's a day just people getting ratted, but it's a day to celebrate Irish being Irish. As much as I could rant about how frustrating that is, to bring it back to those miracle stories, I think it is worth talking a little bit about that and how we can balance both our belief as, as Christians in miracles, but also the sense in which there is a particular genre of medieval storytelling, which is expressing a truth, uh, but is not necessarily about conveying historical facts about uh, a figure. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, this is true. So first of all, I think probably as a starting point, I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Way, but there's a bit in it where Martin Sheen's character meets a priest who's walking across the pilgrimage route across Spain. He thinks he's a rabbi initially because the priest has a skull cap covering a scar from brain surgery. And the priest says, well, I've heard miracles happen here on the Camino. And he says, do you believe in miracles, Father? And the priest says, I'm, I'm a priest. It's, it's sort of my job. <laughs> and, and it is. You know, it would make, you know, at the core of Christian belief, is 
two miracles above everything else it was probably two one being that a man rose from the dead and the other being that god created everything out of nothing that, that's what you've got you've got you've got the creation of everything and then you've got the kind of recreation that happens with the resurrection and then there's many many more god becoming man any number of kind of Frankly, lesser miracles, you know, the feeding of the five thousand, whatever it'll be. Um, so that's absolutely core to what we what we believe and should be. So that's kind of a starting point. Um, if you believe that God is not just the creator and the sustainer, but the ruler, if you like, of nature, then you believe that he has the authority and the and does occasionally act in ways that change things and ways that might seem inexplicable. There <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this. There is a textbook used in Irish schools which describes miracles. It defines them as a, a miracle is a good outcome that is difficult to explain. Now, <laughs> the, the, there are more to miracles than this. So we're looking here at um, early medieval accounts. And one thing that's worth saying is that historical writing, and this is hagiographical writing, which is a, a step further, but even historical writing in the Middle Ages wasn't as historical writing is now. There's a line in Barbara Tuchman's book, A Distant Mirror, where she talks about the, the 14th century, the calamitous 14th century, she calls it. And she talks about the numbers you see for ancient ar or middle medieval armies and casualty figures and so forth. And she makes the point that they are used symbolically. They're not even rounded off numbers. They're numbers that are used to give you a sense of enormity. So if it says 10,000 people were killed, that doesn't mean 10,000 people were killed. And it also doesn't mean 9,312 people were killed and we've rounded it up. It means lots of people were killed. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a certain willingness to kind of, I don't want to say even say bend truth because it's a different way of thinking. It's kind of, it's, it's a different narrative mindset. And we have to be careful with that because otherwise you wind up dismissing things that are not factual and you dismiss them as basically lies. And that's not what's going on. It's, it's simply, it's a different way of storytelling and a different way of communicating. Yeah, you read Bridget's Miracles, you read Pat's, Patrick's Miracles, you read the accounts of these. And at a very basic level, I don't know which ones are meant to be historically accurate or not. I really don't know. I don't know to what extent the medievals believed these things happened or not. I, I'm wary of the approach. I am wary of the approach which says they didn't believe them. They just thought they were meaningful stories. They did think they were meaningful stories and also fun stories. Some of them vary. Um, we can, talking meaningful ones will matter. But they, they, they definitely thought they were meaningful and entertaining. I'm just a bit sceptical of assuming that everybody also thought they were just made up. I, I, I think that's a dangerous road to go down unless you can produce accounts. People saying they're just made up. In the second century BC, there was a Greek historian called Polybius who was in Rome, and he writes this, one of the most influential political documents ever. It's, it's, it's the sixth book of his history, Rome. And he talks about the Roman constitutional system, and there's a bit in it where he talks about Roman religion. And what he says is, the Roman aristocrats don't really believe their religion. They just use it to control the ordinary people. Now, it's possible that's true. It's also probably not an accident that Karl Marx was a classicist by training. But equally, it may simply be that's how Polybius saw the world. And he just assumed the Romans did likewise. And I think there's a real temptation for us who live in a disenchanted world or, you know, to use that phrase from Charles Taylor's book, is it Charles Taylor? Um, a secular age. 
you know, that we live in a world we just, we find it very easy to imagine a world without miracles. So given we find it very easy to, to imagine a world without miracles, our default is to dismiss miracle stories. One of the articles, like I, I keep mentioning Levin, but there was an article by Francis Young in one of the um, editions of Levin, which I thought was really great on this and talking about how folklore was incredibly important for the sustaining of Irish Christianity, that in England, the Catholicism sort of retreated to the gentry and in Ireland, when it was being persecuted, it retreated in some ways to the land. And so we had this amazing landscape culture of Irish between mass rocks and holy wells and ruins where mass was still being said. Um, and so you have these localized stories that are intrinsically linked to two places and, and places in the land. And from that, we get this incredible tradition of folklore that shouldn't be either um, used from a more secular point of view to whitewash and to, to wash away anything meaningful in terms of uh, religious belief, but also shouldn't be seen by religious people as a dangerous or uncomfortable element. Obviously, like you said, there's something that we don't know and there's some things that we can't ever just get a clear answer on. But equally, we shouldn't be so fearful of it being a sort of Trojan horse, I think he calls it for paganism, that this is actually part of a Christian community talking about their faith. Um, he says, folklore is not factual because folklore is not concerned with facts. And so it is not really fair to evaluate it by the standards of history. And he goes on to say, the stories of St. Patrick became a tradition in their own right, reinforcing St. Patrick's significance to localities and knitting together an Irish Catholic identity inseparable from the great missionary saint. Point out that these narratives are untrue, even if doing so is correct, misses the point that they serve as a critical purpose in folk hagiography. And I think one of the really important points that he makes as well is that this whitewashing of, of Christian belief as pagan is part of a long tradition of anti-Catholic, anti-Irish sentiment that was to to say that all of Irish culture was pagan. I think you've already mentioned a sort of su suspicion of Irish culture in, in even, even going back to the medieval times, but that it has continued right up until recently. And in some ways, in a very sad way has been embraced then by I the Irish themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's definitely the case. We've, kind of, we've definitely internalised it. I think, that, I think that's very clear. And yeah, Francis is right. Uh, there's no doubt about this one, about when he talks about, um, look, you're doing something different with folklore. I mean, I mentioned the story of, of Kieran of Sire and his, like, his, his fox and the badger earlier. I think the boar, the wild boar, is possibly the first member of his monastery, or maybe it's a wolf. There's an aggressive animal, and that becomes the first one. There's no way of picturing these without picturing them like characters from the Wind of the Willows, kind of pottering around his monastery. It just doesn't mentally work otherwise. And or I think maybe, um, Robin Hood, the Disney animated Robin Hood with Friar Tuck and, and all the animals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's. I think that's what you have to picture. Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty confident that our our ancestors, you know thought that they were like funny stories but not really what was happening you know i think that's that's definitely the case which doesn't mean that they didn't think there was value to them and it, it went beyond just entertainment but I, I think they had the brains to realize no that didn't happen but equally you know you take bridget so you have a lot of stories a lot of stories of bridget tend to fall into particular patterns you know where she is regularly trying to rescue people 
who are about to be executed. That's kind of a fairly common kind of motif for her. Um, another one, and this one's really interesting, is that she gives everything away. And this kind of puts the monastery into difficulty at times. But God always provides. Whatever is needed is always provided. Now, at a basic level, the lesson there should be that you trust in God. Whatever these stories are, they're showing her as somebody who trusts absolutely in God. They're also communicating the fact that it's God who provides. I mean, the, the phrases that we see constantly are this miracle happened through the power of God. God did this through the faith of Bridget and so forth. The recurring point here is not as we would constantly phrase it nowadays that Bridget performed miracles, but that actually God performed miracles for Bridget and through Bridget. And that's that's something to keep in mind, because it, it does seem that our ancestors were clued in on that theological distinction that God is acting through Bridget. You have bits where she'll perform a miracle and they all praise God for it. You know, it's a recognition of where this is coming from. And it's a recognition that we can slip nowadays. But even things like, you know, OK, now this story, again, I'm not saying whether it's true or not, but it's a short one. So I'll read it out. Right. So this is from the so-called Vita Prima Sancta Brigitte, the, the so-called first life of St. Bridget which ironically is probably not the first life of St. Bridget because cogitosis predates it. But anyway, and it says, at this time, St. Bridget was a guest at the monastery of St. Lazara or St. Lashra. Now, one day towards evening, St. Patrick came with a large crowd to put up at that monastery. Thereupon, the local community was worried and said to Bridget, what are we going to do? We don't have food for such a large crowd. Now, anybody hearing this story should go, I think I know this story. Um, <laughs> but Bridget says to them, how much do you have? And they said to her, all we have is 12 loaves and a little milk and one sheep, which we have cooked for you and your folk. But Bridget said, these will be enough for the whole lot of us, for the sacred scriptures will be read to us, thanks to which we shall forget about bodily food. Whereupon the two groups of people, namely Patrick's and Bridget's, ate together and had their fill, and the amount of scraps they had left over was greater than the supplies which St. Lostra had offered them in the first place. And later, St. Lostra offered herself and her place to St. Bridget in perpetuity. Now, obviously, this is the, the template for this story is the feeding of the 5,000. And um, there are lots of stories like this in Bridget. I mean, this is this is one where it's just kind of egregious because it's, it's the same story, the same shape of the story that we know. But there's lots of stories where you have, we don't have enough food. What are we going to do? Trust in God. God will look after us. And that point is driven, driven home time and time and time and time again. If you read, if you read the lives of Bridget, and this is why they're actually incredibly relevant to us nowadays. If you read the lives of Bridget, you should be getting, no matter how exotic this dark age, again, I hate that phrase, but it's kind of dark age context might seem to us. You should be getting trust in God is everything. Faith in God is everything. Hospitality to people is absolutely non-negotiable. At one point, it says her mother was a long way from the Druid's house at the time and had 12 cows for making butter. After coming to her mother, St. Bridget would distribute butter to the poor and the guests every day and divide the butter into 12 parts as if for the 12 apostles and one part would be larger as if for Christ. For she used to say, every guest is Christ. And that's the underpinning message constantly whenever anybody comes to her door it could be a leper who's sick it could be anybody at all and she will usually heal them but the point is she sees them as christ she recognizes them as christ it's it's, it's matthew 25 where you you recognize anybody in need as christ before you and you respond to them accordingly kind of so, reckless hospitality well i mean yeah it is a reckless in hospitality i don't know if i said it to you i certainly 
said this a couple of times lately. We, we talk nowadays, and rightly, about the fact that we need to recover the sense that Christianity is reasonable, and it is, but it imposes demands on us that are almost unreasonable. It, it calls us to an unreasonable charity, um, an unreasonable love. Now, that's not to say unreasonable in the sense of against reason, but unreasonable in the sense of beyond reason. It calls for us to give not until it hurts, but even if it hurts. And we, we, you, you, <laughs> Bridget perhaps overdoes it at one point. You have a story about her father apparently tries to sell her as a slave just to get rid of her because she, um, she keeps taking his stuff and giving it to poor people. She keeps giving the family property away and he's afraid she's going to impoverish them. But her, her reading of it is you have to. That's what Christianity demands of you, that you have to give everything. Um, it's, 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 so whether or not the miracles happened or which of the miracles happened, which is probably a better kind of way of looking at them, because I think it's, I'm most comfortable with saying, I'm sure some of them did, I'm sure some of them didn't, and I have no way of telling which or which. But even then, they are communicating the demands that are imposed upon us and the gifts that are given us. I mean, that's that's constant throughout it, that this is God's power acting through her because of her faith in God, because of her trust in God. And because God gives so much to us, we are required to give so much in turn to God and to each other to kind of nurture and protect our neighbours. And that's that's running through it the whole time. Hospitality is an expression of love for God. And I think it's these kinds of radical virtues that, again, along with all of the, you know, the great intellectual stuff that we talked about and the great historical achievements that we all talked about. But to me, it's again, these virtues that have been communicated into culture and carried across the centuries, that it's disheartening that we're losing to a sort of vague spirituality in this paganism. I have a quote from Hilaire Belloc, which is kind of pointing out the sort of foolishness of trying to reintroduce paganism, which is that you can't go backwards. He says, the reason of this is you cannot undo an experience. You cannot cut off a man or a society from their past. And the world of Christendom has had the experience of the faith. When it moves away from the faith to return to paganism again, it is not doing the same thing. It is not producing the same emotions, not passing through the same process, not suffering the same reactions as the old paganism did, which was moving towards the faith. It is one thing to go south from the Arctic towards the civilized parts of Europe. It is quite another to go north from the civilized parts of Europe to the Arctic. You are not merely returning to a place from which you started. You are going through a contrary series of emotions the whole time. And I think maybe even to round us out, I think you have a great Chesterton quote that kind of ties into this. Well, yeah, it's um, it's from a it's from a, a newspaper article he wrote. He says, "I'm very glad that our fashionable fiction seems to be full of a return to paganism, for it may possibly be the first step of return to Christianity." Neo pagans have sometimes forgotten when they set out to do everything the old pagans did that the final thing the old pagans did was to get christened. And he's kind of echoing this, the thing he'd written in his, his book, Heretics, which is one of the great underrated masterpieces of him, a book he did in 1905, and it all looks very ephemeral, and it turns out to be incredibly relevant and up-to-date in almost everything it says. He's criticizing mindsets of the day, and they're all still around one way or another, I think. But he says, there's one broad fact about the relations of Christianity and paganism, which is so simple that many will smile at it but which is so important that all moderns forget it. Uh, the primary fact about Christianity and paganism is that one came after the other. 
There is only one thing in the modern world that has been face to face with paganism. There's only one thing in the modern world which in that sense knows anything about paganism, and that is Christianity. I went to a talk once, and I, it's, it's funny, I, I can't remember, the, it was inspired by something in a novel. And I can't remember if this detail was in the novel or in the talk, but it was about the influence of Ovid on Homer. And Ovid lived about 700 years after the Iliad and the Odyssey were written. So by definition, there's no influence on it, except there is, because we can't read the Iliad and the Odyssey except through eyes that are shaped by the Roman popularization of myth that occurs with Ovid. And this this is entirely how we look at Greek myth, is through Romanized eyes. Well, likewise, if we're going to talk about paganism and what was pagan Ireland like, we know nothing about it except what comes to, or next to nothing, except what comes to us through Christian eyes. And that, that, that is kind of the defining feature. Every single thing we know about this is Christian. It, you know, it's it's one of the things that Tom Holland talks about in his, in his book Dominion and so forth, that and our atheism, modern atheism, is a Christian idea, basically. It comes out of that. Everything we have is coming out of Christianity, and Christianity is what defines our world for good and for ill. Um, it comes out of that. Yeah, likewise, we, we, we can't. You can't recover paganism. You can't, you can't celebrate our ancient Irish paganism. You know nothing about it. All you know, really, is a couple of bits in the Christian writers where they talked about it, generally as a bad thing, and then you're looking at 19th century people who start kind of fancying it up and imagining what it must have been like. If anything, this is Victorian and Edwardian spiritualism um, mm -hmm. carrying on today. Um, you know, it's, I'm going to paraphrase Chesterton this time, but it's, it's his line about, you know, when, when you stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything. You know, Taylor with his secular age talks about us living in a disenchanted world. But the problem is, and here I'm going to throw C.S. Lewis into the mix, it's that the problem is, is that we have an appetite for the spiritual. We have a deep-seated tendency to recognize that there's more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in our philosophy. And if we cannot access that, because we don't want to, if we, if we turn our back on the transcendent through the sacraments and so forth, if we turn our back on that, if we say we don't want an organized religion or we often don't want religion at all, we kind of have to invent something. And that's that's pretty much what we're left with. You know, our hearts are restless until we rest, they rest in thee, as St. Augustine put it. Well, if we're determined not to rest in thee, we start making up, we turn not to rest in God, we're to start making up a past that never existed. And in the process, I think we end up denying the truth and the achievements of everyone who came before us. And that strikes me as a, a very foolish road to be on. Couldn't agree more. And so I hope that is good fodder for celebrating St. Patrick's Day in the coming week and keeping your eyes clear for the various saint celebrations, however they come to us in our various cultures and communities. But thank you so much for having this discussion with me, Greg. I just have one last question, which is, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Uh, what have I been enjoying? I've been enjoying watching the, um, we've been re-watching, uh, in my case, the 1980s and 1990s Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes TV show. Which, I approve so uh, wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, so I, mean, I, I love it. It's kind of funny watching it again now. I mean, I, I'm becoming very much, I always remember it as Jeremy Brett being brilliant as Sherlock Holmes. 
oddly, it's um, we're really enjoying the Watsons. Uh, the first Watson has a wonderfully boyish quality to him. And then when he gets replaced, uh, Edward Hardwick, who replaces David Burke, has this kind of, I mean, he's very funny, but it's a slightly world-weary quality up about him. Where um, the, the most recent one we watched involved, like, at some point, Holmes says to him, you know, do you have a pistol, Watson? And Watson produces this gun and starts explaining at great length how it saves Holmes' life so many times and all of this. Holmes proceeds to tie it to a rock and throw it in the water. <laughs> just looking at Holmes by gun <laughs> you know so yeah that's probably what I'm what I'm enjoying the most at the minute it also goes all in on the cinematography there's some amazingly constructed shots and merges from one scene to another that yeah that I just feel like most people couldn't be bothered to do with television these days it's it's just wonderful I'm a huge Jeremy Brett fan I literally have a poster of him on my wall <laughs> As, as a Sherlock to another Sherlock. So that series means a lot to me. I, I love it very much. Um, I think for the thing that I've been enjoying, I did already mention when I started it that I was listening to Bleak House. I've now finished Bleak House and I adored it. I thought it was amazing. I did preemptively say I was enjoying it, but I was enjoying to the, enjoying the process of listening to the audiobook at the time. So now that I've finished the story, I can say I enjoyed the whole story. Um, did, did it take you long to get into it? And I say this because... Um, when I at the time I read it, uh, it was kind of a running joke with several friends of mine who were convinced nobody had ever managed to finish it. <laughs> I said to uh, one of my friends, I said, "Well, my mum says her mum read it," and she goes, "Craig, I'm not accepting family legends." Um, <laughs> you know, even even the BBC people, she said, when they filmed it, didn't read it because they were confident they could make up the ending because nobody had ever made it that far. The ending, amazing. Oh, no, it is. It, it's great. Well, actually, so I did finish it and I loved it. It took me forever to read the first quarter of the book. I'm talking like six months. I just couldn't. And then once I got beyond that, I read it in just a couple of weeks. And it took me a while to realize it has kind of a, it's a strange thing to say, but it has a fish shaped plot. Most yeah. books, most books are shaped like a diamond. They start at one point, they broaden out and then everything narrows down to one point. Bleak House starts off in like a half a dozen different places and it takes a quarter of the book for those strands, to, it's very modern actually, you'd see this all the time nowadays and things, but it takes a long time for the strands to come together, and once they converge, then the plot kicks in. But So I always wonder what it must have been like for people who um, read it as a series. I guess they just trusted Dickens that it was going to come together, you know. And I think that's what I feel in that I've I felt the same about David Copperfield and to an extent Nicholas Nickleby, which is that you kind of just have to trust Dickens to an extent that I, I've always enjoyed the journey of Dickens whenever I've been reading him. But then when it comes to the end, it all starts to make sense and you almost enjoy it more in retrospect of thinking of all of the things that looking back on how they all work together. I think that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Greg, so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. You're very welcome. It was fun being on. Um, uh, even with we've had some technical some I say we've had many technical difficulties in recording this so thank you Greg so much for bearing with me and uh, for our listeners please uh, subscribe to our newsletter or you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter I know Greg is also on Twitter where you can follow him and I'll link everything in the description but other than that thanks for listening and we look forward to speaking with you again for the next episode goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson.
and you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.